0: Hey, welcome to Gospel Community Sermon Podcast. Thanks for listening in. We hope that uh, you enjoy what you hear and that we handle the word faithfully. We'd invite you, if you have any questions or want to attend a service, to visit www.gcctroy.com. This week I spent some time reading up, and by reading I mean watching YouTube videos. Reading up, as it were, about Christian martyrs. And I came across this quote. It's talking about the Council of Nicaea, the Council of Christians in the third century after Jesus' death. Vance Havner noted that of the 318 delegates attending, fewer than twelve had not lost an eye or a hand or limp on a leg, lamed by torture for their faith in Jesus Christ. 12 out of 318. I read about the Marian martyrs in England, 1555. 300 individuals put to death by Mary Tudor because of their faith. I read about St. Lawrence in 258 A.D. where he was burned on a grate and halfway through his death, He said this, and you're allowed to laugh, it's okay. He said, I'm well done on this side, turn me over. (laughs) Mocking death, seeing the hope of Christ. And it begs the question for us this morning, how do these people do this? How do these people um, stare death in the face and move forward with confidence? And one of the, our themes this morning from First Peter is just this idea of suffering and and intentionally taking on suffering, not because it's just kind of some random process of the world, but because it's God initiated. And that's what we'll see in our passage here this morning in First Peter chapter one, is that the engine that powers such suffering, the engine that allows us to get through, the battery that charges us for this, is actually the gospel, the God-saving work of Jesus Christ the foreknowledge of the Father, the work of the Spirit to empower His message and His messengers. So here's our big idea this morning. Salvation belongs to the Lord who predicts, causes, sustains, and rewards our faith. Salvation belongs to the Lord. That's what we'll see this morning. Is that salvation from beginning to end is God's. It belongs to the Lord. It is of His work. It is bound up in His merciful nature, and He extends it to us of His grace. So I'm going to invite you to turn with me to First Peter chapter one, where we'll read verses three through twelve this morning. Uh, we're going to see this in three different phases in our text this morning. We're see- going to see that God provides faith for us in verses three through five. That uh, He's caused us to be born again to a living hope. And we'll see kind of some of the ramifications of that. And then verses 6 through 9, we'll see that he proves... He proves our faith to be genuine by submitting us to trials and testing our faith so that that faith which is more precious than gold can be shown to be true and right. And then finally in verses 10 through 12 that he predicted faith through the work of the Holy Spirit. So I invite you uh, to read with me from verses 3 through 5 here this morning. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy... He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. What is Peter saying here? He's starting, and he's saying, God deserves blessing and salvation, right? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Imagine you just turn on the 5 o'clock news, and you see an interview, right? And the person is being interviewed because their house was caught on fire, and uh, this person came in and rescued the dog, right? They rescued the dog, and and what they do next is they, they bring out the dog, they say, what a good dog that was willing to be rescued. Imagine this amazing dog that actually went with this person to be saved. No, that never happens, right? See, the glory goes to the rescuer. The glory goes to the person that was sacrificial in the orientation that was willing to go into the burning house and take out this animal, right? See, the glory belongs to the rescuer. And in the same way, Peter speaks about our great rescuer and how he is deserving to be blessed, to be praised. He specifically states that he works this out according to his mercy, according to his great mercy, as Peter says. That is, that this salvation that we're speaking of is in accordance with God's character. And that God's mercy, Peter describes, as great. That is, his mercy is exceeding or abundant. It's with an ocean without bottom, a sky without horizon. You and I, we cannot overstate or uh, uh, over-articulate the inexhaustible grace of God. In fact, the only way to speak of it is to recognize its infinitude. And yet, it's only available to those who would turn in faith to Jesus Christ. It doesn't stop there. And he goes on in verse 3, and he describes that we have been caused to be born again. He has caused us to be born again. It's a strange statement, isn't it? Right? Born again. What are we talking about here? John 3, Jesus has this interaction with this Pharisee named Nicodemus, and we are probably familiar with this story, but Jesus goes and speaks, or Nicodemus comes to Jesus, I should say, and speaks to him, and uh, Nicodemus is asking about who Jesus is, and in verse 3 of John 3, Jesus looks back at Nicodemus, and he says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And so he's looking at this religious ruler, this religious authority, and he's saying, no, what you're doing isn't enough. You're not good enough, Nicodemus. You can't add up to the holiness and righteousness of God. What you need is you need to start all over. Thus the term, born again, was born. Ephesians, as Brian read this morning, Ephesians says that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. And so when we discuss that, that we are, need to be born again, it's God's remedy for our spiritual death, that we were dead in our transgressions and sins, and God had to raise us to newness of life. John Piper describes it in his book, Finally Alive. He says, Jesus' teaching about the new birth confronts us with our hopeless spiritual and moral and legal condition apart from God's regenerating grace. Before the new birth happens to us, we are spiritually dead. We are morally selfish and rebellious. We are legally guilty before God's law and under his wrath. And when Jesus tells us that we must be born again, he is telling us that our present condition is hopelessly unresponsive, corrupt, and guilty. See, being born again describes our need for spiritual renewal. It is the spiritual rebirth such that we are now equipped to perform the moral requisites of God's character. Just to illustrate this, imagine a, a, uh, a train that's broken down on the east side of the Rocky Mountains. And what's happened is there's so much freight to be carried that that, mountain, or that, that train cannot get over those mountains, as it were, Right? Well, our new birth kind of comes and replaces that engine with something else that's powerful enough to do the job that has been assigned to it. See, you and I and our sinful nature were not capable of fulfilling the law of God. Romans 8 says it with such clarity, right? There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are are in Christ Jesus. But it goes on and it describes that uh, the law of the spirit of life has set us free from the law of sin and death because what the law was powerless to do and that it was weakened by the sinful nature God did by sending his son. See, when the new engine is brought in, it can pull the freight up the mountain. And our new birth in Christ can help us to fulfill the commandments that God has brought to us. It says that we're born again. Now, what happens here in our passage is that we get three things, three kind of outcomes of this faith. And Peter in verses three through five is going to lay out three three different things, three twos. See, we're born again to a living hope in verse three. were born again to an inheritance in verse four. And then we were born for a salvation in verse five. I know it's not a two in the Greek it is, though. I promise you. I'm not lying, all right? To a living hope. What does it mean for us to be born again to a living hope? He says it in verse three there, right? Born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. See, the truth this morning is that our hope with a capital H, Jesus Christ, is not dead. He's not decaying in some tomb out in Israel right now. He's not left there with his bones. He has arisen from the dead. He sits in the presence of the Father. He advocates before the throne of God, before you and I, so that we have a living hope that is ongoing, not a dead hope that died generations ago. It's not just that, we also are born again to an unspoiled inheritance. Look at verses four and five. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. See, our new birth gives us an inheritance. Paul tells us that we are heirs of God, co-heirs with Jesus Christ. See, this treasure's not earthly, it's not gonna be bound up with rust, it's not in a storehouse where someone can steal it and take it away. This inheritance is unspoiled, unfading. It never rots. It never goes away. It is always present for us. It is kept by God himself. Born again to a living hope, to an unspoiled inheritance. And then verse 5, to a future salvation. Who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. I love what Peter says here. It says, we are guarded by God's power. That is the God of heaven who sovereignly foreknew and elected now keeps us. He guards us. It was by God's unmerited favor that we came to know him. It's by God's work that we are now kept. I love in the passage right after what Brian read this morning in Ephesians 2. Paul says that uh, this faith that we have is not our own. It is a gift of God. It's not something we just kind of stumbled upon. It's not something that we kind of, um, we were spiritually sensitive, and so we created it of our own will. No, God gave it to us. And so God uses this faith to guard us. Look at verse 5. I love how he states this here in verse 5. He says, who by God's power are being guarded. So you and I are being guarded. How? How are we being guarded? What is God doing to guard us in particular in the midst of this crazy, chaotic world? Well, verse five clues us in. We are being guarded through faith. The faith that you have is actively guarding you. By God's design, by God's will, by God's effort, he is guarding you through the faith that he has gifted you. God is actively uh, keeping his own people so that, Christian, if you are truly in Christ, your faith will never be problematic. Whatever our God starts, he finishes. And so God will continue to encourage and establish your faith uh, uh, for the sake of the protection of you. This is heady stuff, isn't it? I kind of just dove right in this morning. And we kind of want to just take a step back and just kind of see exactly what God's getting at. See, God causes and guards our faith. That is, he caused us to be born again, and then he guards our investment. My dad was a a car person. And somehow, that skipped a generation. I'm not a car person. In fact, the only discernible talent I have is that I can play guitar. That's it. That's all I've got. But he's a a person who, um, he loved to invest in cars, and we would buy old cars, and he would work on them and do those kind of things. But imagine someone who who purchased a car, the rare jewel of all cars, and he was buried in in some uh, barn somewhere. It was underneath a, a cloth, and there it was. And they pulled the dust off, and it's just you know, rats are living inside it and whatnot, right? And the rare jewel of cars, you you find it buried underneath dust in, in some barn, and this person has taken it in and lovingly restored it to working order. And what happens is, he doesn't just restore it to working order, he re- continues to refine and fix it. He's not going to abandon his project. It's just like our God. Our God finds us in our sinful state. He blows the dust off of us as it were. He causes us to be born again and he's continuing uh, to guard and protect us. He doesn't just get us back to restored working order. He actually continues to refine and change us. This week I was at McDonald's. I know, high society living right there, right? I was at McDonald's and every McDonald's in the country has a group of old men that meet between 7 and 9 a.m. in the morning like every mcdonald 's across the country it 's required, um, but I was there, and i 'm listening to their conversation, and um, they start talking about a, a Bible passage because there 's two ways to f- cause a fight with the old guys right it 's talking politics that 's the first fight that can happen, and the second thing is talking scripture, and they started talking about the passage from matthew eighteen it 's easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich man. Um, to be saved or to enter the kingdom of God. And so it becomes awkward when one of the men points at the other men across the table and says, you're rich, you're a rich man. And he said, I'm not rich, you're rich. You know, And they start having this argument about who's more rich and who this passage actually applies to. And it reminded me of, of the whole teaching of that passage from Jesus, because Jesus is saying, hey, it's easier for a rich man to pass through the eye of a needle, something that's impossible to do, Right? It's easier for that to happen than for a rich man to come to saving faith in Christ. And the truth is, uh, both of them are in the, what, top 5% of wealth in the world? We're all rich in that room. But Jesus goes on and he says, with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. You sit in a room full of rich people, as it were, right? You drove here in a car that puts you in the top 3% of the world. You and I, we needed grace from God. We needed God to interact on us, to save us. Because with man, our salvation was impossible. But with God, all things are possible. If God has caused our faith, we should also anticipate that he would keep our faith. It stands to reason that if we can't cause ourselves to be saved, that we can't do anything to lose it either so this morning, when we look at First Peter, we see a God who is active and, and ready to save, extend salvation, and cause salvation in his people. But he wants to push on. Peter wants to press on to something deeper. He doesn't simply want to explain God's salvation in the past tense. He wants to bring us in the present tense of God's sal- saving work in us. In verses 6 through 9, what Peter's going to tell us is that in in essence, God is going to prove our faith. And he's going to do so by testing faith. So look with with me at verse 6. In this you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes through it, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. See, Peter tells us here that there's two God-wrought responses in the midst of our salvation It says there's joy in verses 6 and 7 and there's love in verses 8 and 9. Start with joy. Peter tells us that we rejoice amidst faith-confirming trials. That's what verse 6 says, right? In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. And so there's this picture of us rejoicing amidst trials. It's like, a strange statement, isn't it? It's a weird statement. You can rejoice amidst trials. What is that? It sounds like someone who's looking forward to a root canal or someone who's bragging about the upcoming tax audit that they're about to go through. But Peter sees that there is good to be found amidst something that doesn't feel good. Verse 7 gives us the reason, right? So that the tested genuineness of your faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Christ. See, the first thing we need to know is that God is the one who tests faith. Peter describes the tested genuineness of our faith. That is, God subjects our belief in his son's death and resurrection to present-day trials and difficulties. See, a troubled life reveals our earthly priorities, doesn't it? A troubled life kind of strips away all of the the pomp and circumstance of our life. It, It strips away all of the false intentions in us. By the way, this is attested to across the New Testament. James talks about a considerate pure joy whenever you face trials of many kinds because trials uh, produce steadfast, and steadfast al- steadfastness ultimately produces maturity. Uh, Romans 5 tells us that uh, we rejoice in our sufferings because they produce endurance and then character and ultimately hope. And see, what God is telling us all of the time is that God is proving our, f- our faith by continually refining us through Trials. So trials produce an assurance of God's work in us. But second, the result of of this faith is praise, glory, and honor. That's what he says in verse 7, right? So the tested genuineness of your faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And we might immediately think, well, that's praise and glory and honor to Christ. That's praise and glory and honor to the Father, that our salvation actually produces an honor and glory to Jesus. And we would be partially correct because it certainly does so, but I don't think that's what Peter's intending here think he's actually intending that we would be recipients of praise and glory and honor. We might be shy about this, but it's true from the scriptures. Remember, it's Jesus who says, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. That Romans chapter 2 and 1 Corinthians 4 hold out that we would receive reward from God. It's the result of, of the the reward that, uh, the result of a life lived in faith that God would reward us. That's why Peter says that this faith is more precious than gold. gold. See, while our trials are here and now, we might be tempted to think that Jesus isn't. We might be tempted to think that that our difficulties are just ever-present and Jesus kind of comes and goes, or the Spirit kind of comes and goes, but that's exactly opposite of the truth. In fact, what Peter is going to push into in verses 8 and 9 is that our our love for Jesus actually increases because of our trials and difficulties. See, we love an unseen Christ awaiting his reward. Jesus told us that we were blessed if we didn't see and still believe. Remember that in John chapter 21? Thomas looks at the scars on Jesus' hands and in his side, and he says, hey, blessed is the one who doesn't see and yet believes. So Peter is speaking to those who didn't possess the privilege that he had of seeing Christ, right? Peter goes through this three year period of ministering alongside Jesus. He's actually there when, when Jesus' or Jesus's trial is going on. Peter abandons Jesus there. But he's speaking to this audience of people who've never seen Jesus with their eyeballs. And he marvels that they trust Jesus, having never met him before. It's worth noting that Peter talks about enduring trials and then immediately jumps to love for Christ. As if the two things were connected, as if six and seven were actually connected to eight and nine in some you know, way. Right? That we go through the difficulties of our life, the trials that are there, and what it actually ends up producing is a love for a Savior we've never seen. I feel like I'm watching people uh, many different people here in our body go through difficulties, go through hard times, and what it's producing is it's bringing out the dross and it's refining their faith. I have the privilege of sitting and seeing that for so many of us, that, that we are those who are, are refined in our faith through the difficulties of our circumstances. See, God tests faith to prove it genuine. many think that all bad things come from Satan, right? If we get uh, confronted with that, there's kind of this idea that there's uh, God in one corner and Satan in the other, and they're kind of duking it out through the, the, uh, you know, the world events and the things that are happening. But if we consider just for a second the book of Job, we recognize that Satan only does what he does underneath the uh, kind of provision or the oversight of God himself. Satan has to come in before the presence of God and request that he can actually bring suffering to God's servant Job. The truth is that God introduces our difficulties, that God is the one who oversees our trials. To say that, that God is somehow helpless or unknowing of our suffering is to take away from his deity. Yet so many operate under this way of thinking, don't they? I don't know if you've seen this Facebook post or not, but I see this kind of stuff a lot, right? My people will not share and listen to you. My people will type amen and share. I think I know why the pandemic was caused. It's because not enough of us were typing amen and sharing. And I just want to bring out that we should be typing amen and sharing as much as possible because bad things happen when you do not. Of course, we see this as false. Of course, we know that God rules over all things, that even Satan is subject to the sovereignty of God. I can tell you this is decidedly true. We look at passages like Psalm 115. Our God is in heaven, and he does whatever he pleases. Daniel chapter 4. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing And he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? See, if we come back to our Analogy of the car owner. It's not that the car owner restores the car and then he st- places it in the museum so that it would never be pulled out again. No, this car owner restores the car to be useful and then he drives it He takes it out into rain and sleet and snow. He takes it out off-roading. He uses it. He subjects it to the fullness of the things that he needs to do with it. God himself saves us for his purpose, and then he subjects us to all of the hardships of this world so that our faith can be refined and that the glory of Jesus Christ can be brought out of us, the most unlikely of sources. See, God doesn't recreate us to hide us away in safety. No, he has recreated us for rugged use in a broken world. Where Peter turns next might surprise us. See, Peter has spoken of this present faith and the future reward, but now Peter wants to get historical with us. He wants to talk about what's happened before us, and he wants to talk about prophets and how the Spirit used them, and interestingly, the Godward emphasis turns toward the work of the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 10. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, Things into which angels long to look, right? So, first, just off the top, what we see here is a playing out of this very thing that Peter's just been saying. He's saying, God saved you and he subjected you to trials. And we shouldn't find that surprising because, by the way, that's exactly what Jesus did. God sent him to the earth and subjected Jesus to continuing trials, right? Such that Jesus was born, was raised, And when he entered his earthly ministry and started speaking about himself, he found himself further and further alienated, further and further rejected. But when we look at another layer of what Peter is saying here, we see that he's talking about the ministry of the Spirit. The first thing he says is that the Spirit moved prophets These prophets did their research. Okay, so the word research isn't great, but uh, they certainly sought wisdom. They searched and inquired carefully. What does that mean? That means they were praying, they were thinking, they were turning over these statements in their head, thinking about what exactly God was saying he was going to do. Like in in Daniel chapter 8, when he had a vision of what was going to happen in the future, he sought to understand it, as Daniel says. See, we can assume that they prayed and thought long and hard on these things that were brought to them so that the Spirit indicated them. It was the Spirit's work to show these prophets who was to come, what Jesus was going to do. But it's not just that the Spirit spoke to the prophets so that we have these kind of books like Isaiah and Jeremiah that tell us about the person of Christ. That Spirit now is empowering preachers. Look at verse 12. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you in the things that now have been announced, that is, preached to you through those things, those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit See, the Spirit is even now empowering preachers to proclaim the prophets' words. The Spirit moved in the prophets to predict the sufferings and the glories of Christ, and now the Spirit is using preachers of all kinds to announce the message of Jesus Christ. We need to pay attention here. See, even now the Spirit is doing His work of illuminating Jesus We've been reading um, J.I. Packer's "Walk in Step with the Spirit." It's a great book; you should pick it up. But he has this analogy that he uses: that the Holy Spirit is one who his job is to actually just put the spotlight on Jesus Christ, to to so shine the light on the person of Jesus that his his attributes, his character, his his beauty and glory will come to the forefront here, the Spirit has predicted Jesus' suffering and glory, which is exactly what Peter is telling us in the 21st century about the life of the Christian. They have this weird statement at the end of this in verse 12. Things into which angels long to look. What in the world does that mean? We're all imagining the 90s show, Touched by an Angel, Yeah, just forget that ever happened, right? What does it mean for angels to long to look into these things? We recognize that angels are different than us. Like we're people. Angels are angels. That's enough theology for today, right? Angels are different than people. People experience the redeeming work of Christ. The angels in heaven who've never sinned, Don't experience such things. And so when Peter's telling us that the angels long to look into these things, it's not that cognitively they can't comprehend it. What he's saying is he's saying it's just amazing to them. It's fascinating that the God of holiness and justice and righteousness is extending mercy and kindness to sinners like us. That the God of of all the universe who spoke the world into existence, who has worked his way through history, who controls all things, who they're shouting, holy, 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 all the time around the throne of God is extending kindness to those who have rebelled against him. See, this morning, we're reminded by Peter that this grace that we've received is an amazing grace, is it not? It is truly an amazing grace from God that is given to us, and we want to unpack that to a greater degree even this morning. See, if we look at this passage in verses 3 through 12, we see that God controls salvation, that salvation belongs to the Lord, as we said at the outset, that it... God controls salvation, and he doesn't just start salvation. that He, he doesn't just complete salvation. He c- controls every aspect of our saving life, our saved life, from start to finish. See, a lot of times we start talking about particular barriers to uh, how other people might hear the gospel. Right now there's this thing called the 1040 window, if you know what that is. That, uh, there's a significant population of people that have yet to hear the gospel. They've never had the Bible translated into their language. They've never heard the name of Jesus. They've never heard the gospel. Uh, it's between the uh, 10th parallel and the 40th parallel north, I think, something like that. And if you, it's a band that just runs around the globe. All of these people that live in there uh, most likely are not Christian, most likely have not heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we, we tend to think there's barriers. There's, there's language barriers that we can't get through. There's uh, barriers of, of, of um, just money and economic difference and all kinds of things. But we take heart this morning to recognize that God is the, the author of salvation. It doesn't mean that we don't need to go and tell. We certainly do. But it also means that if God's the one who controls salvation, start to finish, we should have confidence in our proclamation of the gospel. See, what Peter pictures here is a God that authored salvation. God God is the author, the creator of salvation. And see, Peter shows us simply that all of God saves us all the way. All of God saves us all the way. And what I mean by that is that all of God saves us. All of God is working on our behalf. Every person of the Godhead is at work in Peter's passage here this morning. Every person in the Trinity is working. The Father causes the new birth in verse 3. The Spirit powers prophets and preachers in verses 11 and 12. Jesus is the suffering, now resurrected Savior in verses 3 and 7. So that the whole Trinity, every person is working on our behalf behalf so that we might be reconciled to him. See, Jesus, uh, sometimes we think that Jesus worked independently to save us, that he kind of worked against the Father, and the Spirit kind of came along haphazardly, right? But all of the persons of God had collaborated for our salvation, such that Jesus was not independent, but interdependent with the Spirit and with the Father, Think about the life of Jesus, right? Jesus, uh, in Matthew chapter 3, is baptized, and when he comes out of the water, what, what happens? The Spirit descends like a dove upon the person of Christ. And the first thing that Jesus does right after that is he goes out into the wilderness that he might be tempted. He goes out and he faces the temptations of Satan himself. And right after that, he starts his public ministry. See, Jesus lived a rich life of reliance upon the Spirit just like you and I do. What about with the Father? How did Jesus interact with the Father? He's constantly talking about how he wants to glorify the Father in places like John 17. He's constantly talking about how the Father is glorifying him, and that's what happened at his baptism as well, that the Father spoke, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. See, Jesus modeled a life of interdependence with the Godhead, and so all of God saves us. It's not just that all of God saves us. What Peter's defining for us here is that all of God saves us all the way you notice the past and present future elements of our passage here this morning that there's certain things that happened in the past there's certain things that are happening to us in the present and there's certain promises made for the future see that is Peter highlights the past present and future realities of our faith that is when we are brought to union with Christ in faith you are inalterably saved nothing can separate you from the love of God which is in Christ see all of God has planned purchased and protected your faith and mine you might say Jason that's great, this is a great idea I'm glad Peter wrote this so that I can think correctly about who God is and how he saved us but the problem is I have to go to work tomorrow and I hate work so how does this help me go to work tomorrow? It's a great question. Certainly, if theology is true, if thoughts about God are true, they should be practical, shouldn't they? If the things that we believe about God who created the universe and sustains the universe, they should actually affect the way we live. They shouldn't just be random thoughts that float around in our head. See, if what Peter says is true, and it is, your faith is a God-given defense amidst trials. Your faith is a God-given defense amidst trials. Again, we come back to this idea that for whatever reason right now, uh, it seems like there are just a number of us that are facing difficulties. Whether it's uh, financial difficulties or, or medical difficulties or, or family difficulties or whatever, uh, we face all kinds of problems. And it's not just like the big problems, it's the little things. Like uh, last week my water didn't Turn off in my shower, you know, uh, all kinds of random things. I was here this week and an old man, 82 years old, stops in and he has a flat tire. I said, Change it yourself, man. I mean, no, I mean, we get down and we try and help him. But just the little things, they add up, don't they? See, fundamentally, as Christians, we have the conviction that trials are not random. Sometimes we think of our difficulties as the product of just a chaotic uh, kind of entropic world, right? So that when you have a flat tire, it's because the rubber gave way and it's because of weathering or a poorly placed nail in the road or whatever else. We, we kind of explain these hardships kind of in line with all of the difficulties or all of the, the causes that might have existed, But we never go beyond that and see that there's a God who introduced those trials to us. (coughs) Peter says something really interesting in verse 6. He says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. That is, in God's economy, our trials are of necessity. They are something that God introduces to us uh, for a particular cause and purpose. They are something that God controls, that he oversees, and they're filled with intention designed by a good, loving God for our greater benefit. That the nail that ended up in your tire or the water that wouldn't turn off or whatever it was, was placed there by God himself for his purposes. I was reading this week, uh, there's a hymn, and it's entitled, Whatever My God Ordains is Right. It's by a man named Samuel Rodigast. And Samuel wrote it for this sick friend of his that was uh, kind of bedridden and struggling with it, and this is what verse 1 says, Whatever my God ordains is right, his holy will abideth. I will be still whatever he doth, and follow where he guideth. He is my God, though dark my road. He holds me that I shall not fall. Wherefore to him I leave it all. See, this recognition from the hymn writer and from others is that God controls these trials, these difficulties, even as mundane as they might be, he introduces them to our life to bring about expressions of faith. The faith that God gave us, the faith that's in line with our calling, the faith that is created by God, he's bringing it to the surface as he initiates these sufferings. See, God uses trials to prove he's saving us. ever think about it that way? That your trials, your difficulties are an opportunity for the expression of your real faith in Christ? I'm on a packer kick, so he says this. He says, only a life of present convertedness can justify confidence that a person was converted at some point in his or her past. See, the circumstances of our life expose the root of our real hope. Someone once said, you find out a lot about the person, uh, you find out a lot about someone when things don't go right for them. When things just aren't going, the, the universe isn't quite aligning for them, you find out a lot about who they are and what they trust in. It's enough for me to have to kind of swallow hard as I recognize that sometimes my response to the hardships of life aren't always righteous. Peter will go on later in this book. and In chapter 4, he'll say this. Whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. We should stop and think about that for a second. Whoever has suffered in the flesh Has ceased from sin. What is Peter saying? Is he saying that through our sufferings, through our difficulties, we actually earn our salvation? That somehow we just kind of collect and uh, accumulate enough suffering in our history so that God actually saves us? He accounts it to us as righteousness, and therefore we're saved. Is that what's happening? Well, no, it's probably the opposite. Rather, we endure suffering because we have been saved. That God is actually proving our suffering, or proving our faith through our suffering and through our difficulties. You might recognize our big idea this morning. Salvation belongs to the Lord. It's a statement from Jonah chapter 2. If you remember the story of Jonah... Jonah is swallowed by a giant fish, like halfway through. Well, in the first quarter, he's running from God, and he—he, he, uh, you know. Eventually a storm kind of comes on uh, on his ship and all of the people on the ship are afraid. Jonah's in the belly, belly of the ship kind of uh, asleep and he's woken up and recognizing that he is the cause of this storm. And so as they deliberate amongst themselves, uh, these sailors decide it's time to throw Jonah off the side of the boat. And sure enough, Jonah is willing to do this. And so Jonah is picked up and thrown into the sea to surely die. But by God's divine providence, what happens? A giant fish of some sort kind of comes and swallows up Jonah so that Jonah is inside the belly of this fish. In Jonah chapter 2, he's describing what it's like to hit the water, to sink down into the bottom, and from the depths of the ocean, he's calling out to God for salvation. He's calling out saying, God, come and save me. And he's describing in Jonah chapter 2 his amazement When God hears his call and responds and comes and saves him. Well, that's where this statement comes from. See, Jonah's reflection is that salvation belongs to the Lord. It's not just a statement that God created salvation and he invites any and all to come. It's that God finds us at the bottom of the ocean. That God restores us and strengthens us and calls us to this newness of life described here in 1 Peter. See, the truth this morning for us is that God oversees every aspect of our faith, and He invites us to consider a God who predicts, causes, sustains, and rewards us according to His mercy. I hope we might be those who trust and delight in Christ. I want to pray this morning. Let's pray together. Lord, we ask that you would Help us to be those who delight in your Son, Jesus. Father, we see that you've caused us to be born again. We see that you have sent the Spirit to speak to the prophets, to empower preachers. That you have caused Jesus to be resurrected, that we might also be born again to a living hope. That we have the promise of future reward because of Christ. So, Lord, in the midst of our sufferings, in the midst of our difficulties, help us to be reminded that you control all of this, that you keep and sustain our faith according to your grace and mercy. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.